This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast today. My dear friend, Judea Pearl. Welcome, Judea. It's great to be here. So should I take 15 minutes now to read your resume and bore the audience? <laughs> or should we just skip all of that stuff? Yeah, skip all this stuff. Skip and let's that go you're down a to computer scientist, philosopher, that you've won the uh, famous ACM Turing Award for the highest distinction in computer science, artificial intelligence, Israel activist, professor at UCLA. Where do I go from here? I mean, what have you not done? And you sing at Shabbat tables, because I've heard you. Yes, yes. If there's I, enough I red wine, you will sing. also fight in the trenches. You, you, you fight what? In the trenches? In the trenches, yes. Mm, what kind? UCLA. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, I've known you for many years, Judea, and there's so many aspects to you um, that it's really difficult to know where to start. But one place we can start is uh, I've always tried to figure out, because I've, I've known you so well, I never really understood the scholarly part of you. And you won awards for this book that came out recently, The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect. Is there a way to describe this book to an average listener like me who doesn't have your scholarly background? Sure. Give it a shot. Well, we don't have to explain what artificial intelligence is, right? It is uh, the attempt, the aspiration, to equip machine with human qualities so that machines could be helpers uh, or masters and uh, so that we can use uh, f friendly machines to do our work. So that is clear. And some people are dedicated to that because they strongly believe that it is feasible within our lifetime to achieve such a level of intelligence in uh, silicon. And um, part of it is equipping machines with the ability to reason with cause and effect. We do it very well. You know, you turn the light switch, the light is gonna be on, you'll be able to see your way. So you can get to the kitchen when you need to warm up your tuned. Does that mean that the machines will learn how to learn? Yes, yeah, learn how to learn is part of it. It's a general scheme to mm -hmm. learn how to learn. But in the specific, specific tasks of reasoning with cause and effect, we would like machines to be able to tell us what to be the effect of our actions, our policies, social policies, or individual uh, decision-making, and to reason backward, and say what would have happened if uh, Cleopatra had a different nose? What would the course of history be? I mean, to reason backward and say, had I done things differently than I actually did, would I be better off? And that's important to be able to learn from ourselves, from our deeds, to look back, to revise our software, and to become better performers. So here we have um, simple tasks. Tell me what will happen if I do, and tell me what would have happened had I done things differently. And this is totally different than the uh, a task of reasoning from evidence. If I see a symptom, I can figure out you have a disease, what the doctors usually do, yeah? 
or vice versa. If I see a disease, I can tell you that in uh, three months you're going to suffer from X, Y, Z. So this is reasoning forward. All this we want to equip machine to do. And uh, it's so, it's a, the miracle or the strange thing is that science has concentrated for all these millions of years, <laughs> sorry, thousands of years, only on the um, symptoms. On the new symptoms part, if I see. Tell me what I can deduce if I see. And very little, but tell me what I can expect if I do. So the doing part is something new. Mm. Do you ever look at the, the world, I mean, you know, especially politics, and try to adapt or connect to what you learn? For example, uh, the the arrival of a presidential candidate like Donald Trump. Do you ever look at, like, cause and effect and w what is the cause, what is the effect? It, I mean, it, it, do you do that, Judea, when you look at the world and connect it to your I, teachings? You and I do that. Mm, automatically. Automatically. Whenever mm -hmm. you read, if you read the New York Times or the Jewish Journal, I want to be uh, fair here, mm -hmm. <laughs> you find that most utterances are loaded with cause and effect uh, symptoms, or cause and effect um, indicators. Like, give me an example. Oh, <laughs> the reason he did that, or the motivation, his motivation for doing that was, or uh, it would have been different had he not uh, raised taxes, or everything is cause and effect. Right, but is this uh, like speculative? How do you know when it's accurate no, that's or not? different. Okay. Right. First of all, we think that way. Mm -hmm. We're driven by explanation not by facts. The, f mm -hmm. the f fact is so easy to ignore, and we do, not how, do know how to ignore them. I'll give you an example. Okay, you remember Adam and Eve? I do. Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> so we have common acquaintances. <laughs> nice <laughs> <So>, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, they, when Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, okay, which he was forbidden to do, God... Uh, met him in the garden and said, hey, look, Adam, have you eaten from that tree which I told you not to? And Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me, she handed me the fruit and I ate. And the woman said, ah, it's not, it's the serpent. Right? See, God asked for the facts and they interpreted it as a demand for explanation. We constantly run into explanation. We we hate the facts because the facts are dry. They mean nothing. When you find an explanation, you feel great. Mm. You're in control. You understand what, what's going on. You understand the ropes, not only the facts. So in everyday life, we are driven by, by explanations, by cause and effect relationship. When you read newspaper, we interpret the facts in terms of cause and effect relation, motivation, aspiration, and so on. The question is, the machine doesn't have this ability. The machine reads facts and concludes facts. And that's what I'm working on to change. And that's the theme of the book. Now, is, uh, I'm sure you've heard about the potentially scary future when machines become more powerful and better thinkers than human beings. I mean, it was uh, Elon Musk has spoken about this. Is this, is this something that uh, you are concerned about? I wasn't until uh, quite recently, because I'm not a futurist. 
I don't have the great imagination than other people have, like Asimov, right? But recently I became concerned. We have to worry about where artificial intelligence is going because I think the days are numbered when computers will be better than us. And so they're already better than us in chess and other uh, small endeavors. Uh, but they eventually will take over in uh, much more sophisticated tasks, such replacing the editor of the Jewish Journal. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was reading, I mean, it's like they'll have so much data that they'll be able to uh, let you know whether you should marry somebody or not with better information than you would have. Correct. This is crazy. Yeah, we're looking at the facts, and uh, computers can look below the facts and tell you really um, the, the inner character of your would-be wife. Okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> is it available now? <laughs> <laughs> Can I send you some data? <laughs> oh man! I mean, it's just so foreign to us, Judea. You know, we it just this is a, this is a, a new new territory for humanity. Yeah. And, you know, and you're right in the heart of it. You're one of the world experts on artificial intelligence. What does that mean? I'm a world <laughs> expert on one narrow aspect of it: the cause and effect. The cause and effect. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me successful because I narrow down. <laughs> I dig into one. It's your niche. Uh, yes. In my niche, yeah. So we're going to teach this AI machine how to connect cause and effect. How is it different than consequences? It's so the same thing. It's the same thing. So yeah. I know if I work out, I'll feel good. If I don't work out, I don't feel good. And, Correct. But not only actions that you've actually taken, including actions yet that you I never didn't. take. Okay. Like let's ban cigarette. And it was never done. Right. Can you figure out the effect? I can imagine a few things, but... Uh. So, so, you know, I was having a fascinating conversation the other day, but uh, in therapy right now, they talk about reinventing your narrative. So you sort of take the same facts of your life and you have one way of looking at it, which is dark and paralyzes you, and another way of taking the same facts and sort of reinventing the narrative. So you're talking about going back and looking at decisions you never made. Correct. And asking, what would, how would things be had history been different? Right now, that's uh, you know, in 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 human life, you they teach you, you know, don't regret, don't look back, don't say, I, I wish I didn't marry her, I wish I wouldn't have done that, I wish I wouldn't taken that job. So there is an aspect to it that's a little negative, right? Because it makes negative, you regret. Yes. But there's also. I wish I would have bought that house. For example, right now yeah. it's worth five <laughs> times more. Oh my God! I wish I would have gotten that apartment in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the emotional component. Yeah, but look at the justifications that people normally invent and say, with the kind of knowledge that I had at the time, I did the right decision. Correct, <laughs> because we need that. It's a coping mechanism. Yes, yes. We don't. But at the same time, it's, regret is a very important component in our improvement. Because we look back and say, could I have done things better? Or what, what piece of software in my mind needs a little revision so I will act better next time? Mm. Regret is really a pointer to your own software, which nobody else 
has access to, you have access to. And you say there is a reason why I passed the ball from player one to player two when I played soccer. Okay, I shouldn't have done it. The other one was ready <laughs> to score a goal. We have to make peace with regret is what I'm hearing because we don't. Regret we have to play is, back. Yeah. We have to play it back. This is, we live in a world that just uh, um, downplays and diminishes and eliminates regret. Regret is, a, is a something that's seen as paralyzing you. If I live in regret, how often do you hear people say, I have no regrets? <laughs> that's, now, now that I'm talking to you, that's kind of yes, a lame okay. statement. How could you live a life of no regrets? But it's been uh, sort of elevated as a big accomplishment if in your life to have no regrets. But it's really just a coping mechanism for hiding. And no regrets. regret is, is telling yourself, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to be in the same situation. I know what to, how, what to improve. Okay. I have access to that. Oh, so that's a deeper type of no regret because to get to where you're saying, you first have to regret it. Yes, absolutely. Say, yeah, that was a mistake. I regret it had I done A instead of B. Look, the whole, our whole morality is built on that. Why do we send people to, to a jail for something they've done? Because they ought to have known better, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Right, and still, they still... Do it again, you know. I mean, unless we find a conduit to the software, and that's the idea of constructive regret. Do you ever talk to therapists, psychologists, and they do they pick your brains? Do you pick their brains? Do the two ever connect? No, we have uh, there are groups called calling themselves cognitive psychologists. Mm -hmm who begin to talk uh, computer language because uh, computer is the most advanced um, modeling scheme for uh, capturing uh, ideas and theories in psychology. You can, you can have uh, nice theories, but if you, don't know how, if you cannot program it on a computer, uh, you are really not um, very clear and you can communicate less effectively with other people unless you can compute can you write it in the form of a computer model or computer algorithm i mean at the end of the day um we need to program ourselves right and everything we do programs us whether we like it or not we're writing our own code every day whether we know it or not, whether it's intentional or not, the idea of picking up habits, good or bad, is a type of coding that we do, self-coding. And I think when you deal with psychologists, they want to make sure that you do healthy coding that's going to make you happy <laughs> and satisfied and fulfilled in life, right? It's about coding ourselves. Judaism is a type of code. It's a type, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, so you wake it's up in the morning, you put on tefillin, you make your prayer, you do more day morning. I need. Modeani, and you thank God, and you make a blessing every time you eat food or drink water or drink coffee. No, this is all coding, Judea. Now you're going to make me feel guilty that I have a oh, late no. feeling today. Guilt, that's <laughs> a big part of the coding. Oh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's true, isn't it? I mean, religion is a type of coding. When you get the Shabbat Friday night, you know, that's coded into it's the week. <clears throat> and it's one of the greatest inventions. If of human uh, human species, the Shabbat. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I you, 
I wait for it every week, <laughs> primarily disconnecting from this thing in my hand called the iPhone, which is crazy how it's all grafted in our hands. Um, so I want to transition to the work that you do uh, for Israel. I know you're a big Zionist, and you've been on the front lines of the fight against the boycott movement, boycott against Israel. How did Israel become such a bad guy? I mean, I understand it's far from perfect, but how did how did the Jewish state, the only Jewish state in the world, become so hated by so many people? Is there a cause and effect? Of course. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to ask you that every time now. <laughs> uh, yes. We, we don't want to go into the anti-Semitism. That will take us into history, into uh, what? Far or too far back. No, let's go to 1947. That's where everything begins. Not the important part begins. Okay. And uh, my line is that uh, the Arabs will never forget forgive the Israelis for defeating them in 48. For even dreaming up the idea that they should share the land. And then the left will never forgive Israel for being successful and for denying, for refuting their textbook. The textbooks, the left textbook is that nationalism is bad. And here comes Israel and proves the opposite. Nationalism drives people, takes them from the margin of history. It's a bunch of impoverished peddlers and middlemen, and they lift themselves from the margin of history by themselves and to become a center of entrepreneurship, of science, and industry, and art, okay, on by their own force. It stands against everything that you teach in the leftist textbooks. And the left, I mean, we're just recovered from the two worst wars in human history, where we lost close to 100 million human beings died in that century, the First World War and the Second World War, and so much of that was attributed wrongly or rightly to nationalism. Correct. So at the lowest point of nationalism, here comes a brand new sovereign enterprise called Constructive Israel. Constructive form of nationalism. Uh, it successful. went totally against their narrative totally. that nationalism is a horrible idea, is what you're saying. So here you have a combination of two elements. First, the Arabs that can never forgive you because we defeated them militarily. And then you have the left. You combine the two and you have what we have today, okay? Ilhan? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like we confuse the narratives. So the the Arabs um, didn't see the Jews as a threat for centuries because we were demis and second-class citizens and we were tolerated because of that. So all of a sudden, the Jews come in and, you know, create this country and they win the wars. That confuses their narrative. And it's very difficult for a human being to live with confusion a type of cognitive dissonance, and then the left, uh, by the time Israel was created, were gung-ho against nationalism. So the success of a country confuses them, and there's a cognitive dissonance, and I think human beings don't enjoy that because they prefer clarity. They clarity you for this. <laughs> they pr human beings prefer clarity. It helps you wake up in the morning. Uh, you have clarity. 
and, yes. and Israel came in and just confused the whole picture. And I think it still does. Uh, every day. We defeat the narrative. Yeah, I, I just read something interesting uh, about, um, about our friend Ilhan Omar. Okay. <laughs> sure. I read where she came from. Okay. From Mogadishu. Mm. And she was 14 when she came here. And I looked at her, I asked myself, what do they teach there in Mogadishu? Okay. Where did she get her mother milk? What did she know about Jews? She was elected, you know, to what? To the, United, to the Congress Foreign Affairs Committee. She should know something about the world, about America, about Israel, and so forth. Okay. So what do they teach there in Mogadishu? I found the source. The source was uh, I got from a speech that um, Hirsi Ali gave when she got an award from J from the Jewish agency. Um, AJC. AJC, yeah. She got a 2006 award for courage. Okay, and she told him, "I want to make a confession. I hated you until the age of uh, 18, yeah, and I hate you so badly because I was." She's educated. talking to the Jews and to Israel? Is that her saying yes, that? Yes, okay. yes. And she was giving a speech to AGC, thanking them for all the awards and confessing. I hated you for so long. Now, I learned it by heart because it's very important. She said, when there was no water in the tap, I know that you did it. I don't know how, but I, I was sure you did it. When my mother was angry at me. I know that you did it. It was your fault. When I got bad grade, I don't know how you did it, but I knew it was you. Okay. This is education in Mogadishu. You know, um, in the, it was in the 1880s. It's exactly where our friend Omar grew up. Okay. And um, why is that? There is nothing good about Judaism in the education that people in the Arab world receive today. Because we confuse the narrative. Because if they start teaching about freedom of speech and freedom of religion and about the values that uh, help create Israel, that's a threat, isn't it? It would really confuse the narrative. Because, because you think they're going to look back and say, look at our dysfunctioning function, function in this society? Yeah, I mean, uh, we... Look at our rulers? Well, that's the reason why the rulers uh, encourage this kind of education. Okay. We're, we're a threat on so many levels, are we not? I mean, you look at Israel in the Middle East, it's the, the Arabs that have the most amount of freedom and economic opportunities in the Middle East live in Israel. How do you explain that? That really confuses the narrative. Talk about cause and effect. So there is a, we feel threatened, and I think, I mean, isn't a big reason for the animosity towards Israel is because we have sort of uh, uh, confused the narrative of the left and the right? Yeah, but that's what we talked about, and that's what accounts for the marriage, this unholy wedding between the Arabs and the left. How can you explain it? And this is a, an explanation. We were talking about artificial intelligence and explanation. This is a natural explanation. It's the only one that makes sense. And then you have the 
long, long history of animosity towards the Jews from biblical times and from the <coughs> beginnings of Christianity. I mean, it's like you wonder, Judea, whether uh, anti-Semitism is something we just have to learn to live with forever and ever until the end of time. And is it just the price we have to pay for success? I don't think it's for success. Because throughout the diaspora, Jews were not successful. Mm. Well, they lived in real poverty. Right, it, but right. that's the pathology of anti-Semitism, is no matter what the conditions are, but there will be, people will find a reason for it. They were guilty. But they were guilty because they existed. You see, they produced children, they had education, and they sat down and learned, they act like human beings, and their very presence constituted a threat to the environment. Well, Why? and also to the religious environment, because we were a threat to the beginning of Christianity. Christianity Correct. was supposed to be the new Judaism. The new Judaism. And then we constantly served as a proof, a living proof, that there is an alternative. Mm. See? Our very existence. Was it a threat. Did, yeah, you didn't have to be successful. But you produce children and you send them to school which means you acted like a human being, okay? Which means there is an alternative. It's the greatest threat to anyone. Especially yeah. to religion that <laughs> believes that they own the truth. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as long as we insist on being of an alternative, we are going to suffer from anti-Semitism. And, uh, and ironically, uh, you know, uh, one of the, my favorite things of the Jewish tradition is that we, we really don't believe we own the truth. There are many paths to God. <laughs> You know, we we don't obsess with, you know, converting everybody to become Jews. And oh, that's what we don't proselytize. That's correct. That's yeah. one unique thing. I but wonder if that, time, if that is offensive in itself. I have friends of mine I've known that said, if your religion was that great, you'd want everybody to become Jewish. You know, I want, you know, they want everybody to be Muslim or to be subservient to them. That's in the Quran. And every Christian believes that if you don't believe in Jesus, you won't be saved. So there is this absolutism yes. uh, that's inherent in the other two big religions that is not present in Judaism. And I wonder sometimes whether that offends other religions. That is it a type of arrogance that the fact that we don't want everyone to be Jewish is that no, why? Is why is that held against us? It's it's a sign of self-confidence. Hmm. <laughs> Because we were first at Sinai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we just feel good with ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to get convert everybody. Yeah, think about but that, it, right? How do you compute that? Talk about cause and effect. The, the right, most so hated people in history. Which means that the, the converts are a pain in the ass, in the neck, okay, for Judaism. Right, but right. self-confidence goes totally against the fact that we're, we've been isolated and persecuted for so long, and yet we still have that inner confidence. Is that what you're saying? That doesn't, uh, maybe spiritually Spiritually deep, we feel self-confidence. Mm -hmm. It's not... Right, but the world certainly... Doesn't want you. Don't want you to feel too confident. How do you see what's going on now in Europe, Judea? Uh, in terms of, it seems that the situation is getting worse and worse for the Jews. Where's the biggest threat? Biggest threat coming from? I think it's again. It's this coalition 
unholy coalition between the Muslims which, who constitute, I mean, the, the immigrants, the Muslim immigrants to Europe, which constitute a big voting base that politicians are concerned with, and the left, and the right. Now, I have a three, a holy, uh, ac unholy <laughs> axis. You have three, the extreme right, the extreme left, and the Muslims. Mm. In Europe, you have a co co coalition of the three of them. In, in America, we're just beginning to see that coalition taking place. What I'm sensing that there's a perfect storm brewing with these three forces that was not there a hundred years ago, you know, and, and yes, the Muslim population is going to grow in Europe. The far right ain't going anywhere. They're growing now. And then tell me about the far left, you know, and that's a no force. So all forces of anti-Semitism are growing is what I'm hearing. And reinforcing each other. Mm -hmm. Look, look at the... <laughs> Look uh, who Bernie Sanders nominated his Middle East advisors whenever he decides to run. Okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know his recent choice, mm -hmm. but when he ran earlier in the election, uh, he first put James Zagby on top of his uh, advisory committee for Middle East. Who is James Zagby? You know, the head of the... Oh, sure. Huh? Yes. The, the Arab American uh, ADL sort of, okay? mm -hmm. and he is a man who stood there by the fence in Lebanon, and screamed against Israel, and um, tried to convince the American public that Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization; it's really a philanthropic kind of. This is advisor for Bernie Sanders. I mean, whenever they want to show that they are large and they are thinking creatively. What do the extreme left do? <laughs> they take an Israel hater uh, to represent them, to be, to be advisor for the Middle East. Could you imagine that? You know, there's, so, there's a part of the Jewish community that wishes the world would leave us alone. And, and I think even Theodore Herzl, uh, when he created State of Israel, I think part of him, from what I've read, it just leave us alone. Uh, and there's another part of us that we won't leave the world alone, where we're going to engage with the world if we think we have something to share and contribute. So there's this loop. Mm -hmm. Part of us says, just please leave us alone. And the other part of us is, well, we're not going to leave you alone because, you know, we have Chikun Olam when we repair the world and so forth. And somehow it's just becoming an ugly brew where the good we try to do seems to come back to haunt us and then we, the attention driven towards the Jews has become more and more negative. And how do you, how do you resolve that? Are you talking about Bernie Sanders uh, um, driven by Tikkun Olam and appointing <laughs> James right. Zagby? Well, I actually <laughs> think, Judea, that uh, America is an outlier. Uh, that after 1,900 years of feeling insecure, we finally met this country that treats us equally, okay. which, is, which is something that we yearn for for a long time, so I really see the love affair between America and the Jews as a unique moment in Jewish history. And despite everything we hear uh, about anti-Semitism in America, this is not an anti-Semitic country. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. but, but, but what we're seeing in Europe 
right now and what we're seeing vis-a-vis -vis Israel is just, it's different. It's different. It's but not that's America. That reminds me of what you wrote uh, last week when you said, let's engage Omar, right? Instead of uh, let's uh, uh, run away from her accusations. Oh, well, thanks <laughs> for plugging my column. Appreciate that. <laughs> now that you brought it up. I loved it, <laughs> and I wrote you right away. <laughs> I know. I saw that. Uh, a lot of people didn't understand it. They thought I was just you know, giving her too much credit. But the whole idea was um, if we just focus so much on anti-Semitism uh, when it comes to Israel criticism, then we look like we're running away from the core issues of the conflict. And what I was suggesting was let's, let's weigh in. Let's, let's call their bluff and say, all right, let's put anti-Semitism aside and let's deal with the core issues of the conflict. And this is not as simple as clicking your fingers and ending the occupation, which is so much of the narrative from the progressive left yeah. makes it look as if this is something we can just end in five seconds and you know like I've said many many times but this is one of our weakness I mean we have two weaknesses when we're trying to engage and uh, refute the accusations one weakness is that we say it's not simple it's complex you don't win an argument with complexity good point okay? I'll remember that because I say it a lot yeah it's simple it's the Israeli Palestinian conflict is very simple. No? And keep on saying it's simple, then you get attention, and then you hit them on the right. It's a very simple conflict. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah. You should know. So I really appreciate that. Because, you know, we always worship in Judaism complexity. Yes, we and love it. On one angle, but it really is complex, but what you're saying is within complexity, <laughs> There are simple ideas. Simple? Yes. Look, and if you want to kill us, that's pretty simple. No, yeah. It's one of the simplicity. No, it's a very simple, the way I explain it, whenever I argue, it's a simple conflict between two national forces. One comes in and says, let's share, share, share. The other one says, me, 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 finished. Have you seen any simpler explanation of the conflict? A culture of me, 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 and a culture with share, share, share? Simple, end of, end of discussion. Everything follows logically, cause and effect from these principles, from this dissonance. Now, that is very um, inconvenient <laughs> truth, truth for so many oh, people. yes. Yeah. Well, let's go and analyze it. If I missed anything, <laughs> if <laughs> have I seen to the truth in this simplicity? Have I abandoned any complexity? You want to talk about the um, occupation? You want to talk about colonialism, maybe? <laughs> Come on. Mm -hmm. It all comes back <laughs> to, to the share, share, share versus yeah. me, me, me. Is that what I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah you, so interesting. Occupation. What is occupation? I mean, they keep on telling you, day and night, on all the television, on all the stations, everywhere, if you, what will happen if you lift the occupation. And they're not ashamed about it. We are going to continue the struggle again and on and on. Oh, speaking of cause and effect, of looking backwards and saying what would have happened or what would happen. Yeah. I mean, 
How does that connect to the occupation? Because if you the occupation, uh, from my reading of history, looking backward, took place started in the Arab summit in Khartoum in August of 1967. That was the no, no, no. The no, no, no. You know what it meant to people in my block, in my village? We are destined to live on our sword for the rest of the days. You were in Israel then? No, I was here. Mm-hmm. But I communicated. And daily. this was, just for the listeners, this was right after the 67 war. Two and a half months after the 67 war, when people started saying, uh, land for peace, land for peace, land for peace. And overture were made for land for peace. And then came the no, no, no. You know what it did for t- to my, my generation? Which means we are, there's no way. We are going to live on our soul to the rest of history, which means let's do it from a position of power. That's what started the occupation. If we are destined mm-hmm. to live like that in a hostile environment, let's be in a position of power. Are you encouraged by some of the uh, new alliances uh, that we've seen in recent years between Israel and the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia and even Egypt? Okay, I don't know how long they're going to last because mm. they, they are built on sand. Um, they are built on Mogadishu education. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Well. This is only coming from the top. Um, speaking of Mogadishu, <laughs> this is, uh, wow, this is the most sensitive subject. But I know you you published a book after the disaster uh, called I Am Jewish. Um, how did that come about, Daniel? Oh, Judea. it came about... Well, his last word were, I'm Jewish, my mother is Jewish, my father is Jewish, and I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. And my... Was Daniel was not religious, right? No, he, he was, was no. He was not observant. No, but he liked tradition. Mm-hmm. We, we have a picture of him in the Trans-Siberian train, where he teaches uh, Mongolian peasant what uh, Passover is all about. Mm. <laughs> really? <laughs> he shared rice cookies with them instead of matzo that was on the <laughs> Seder night. <laughs> right. That's. I mean, it's like that was a moment in history fact that he said, I'm Jewish. And he continued. And he said, back in the town of Bnei Brak in Israel, there is a street named after my grand-grandpa, who was one of the founders of the town. This is what Daniel said? Yeah. You know, I don't think people know that. It was his last sentence, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which means, look, (laughs) I come from Israel, Mm -hmm. which means it's a land, it's a building land. And my f- my grandfather was a uh, a build a town builder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he meant by that. I'm trying to interpret. You know, I haven't slept many nights trying to interpret what he mean by that. What he meant by that, because at this uh, moment of stress, I don't know how your mind uh, uh, captures forgotten moment moments. We haven't talked about Neibrak. Uh, regularly. And he still brought it up. He brought it up. It was important for him that his grand-grandpa was one of the founders of the town. 
and they just threw it after him. Well, I've read his work. For he's some a, reason. He's a journalist at heart. He's a storyteller, Daniel. He was, yes. And he and really believed in the power of truth. And that was part of his story. A, it was for him a truth that matters at those last minutes. And since, since then, I've seen how your life has followed two tracks. You know, one of your tracks is everything you do for your son. And in his memory, the Daniel Pearl Foundation, and you have music events, and then you bring in journalists from overseas, from the third world, and they come here to the Jewish Journal. <laughs> and you've done so much on the Daniel to honor your son and his memory, and then you have the annual... Um, you know, uh, address by great speakers from around the world. The lecture, yeah. The lecture. And then, and then you have your own track, you know, of your scholarly track and your Israel activism. And I've seen both of them sort of move forward. And is that what your life is about, back and forth? One of the yeah, after a tragedy, a tragedy like that, you find the consul in um, working for something bigger. And I found it working for Israel, working for humanities, and working for science. That they have three tracks which uh, occupies my 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't sleep. That's what your <laughs> wife told me. You work <laughs> all night, correct? I work all night, I sleep in the morning, yes. Wow. Um, so, how much of your life changed? I mean, before Daniel was murdered, were you engaged as much with Israel and some of the other stuff? How did it change? I was engaged. It matters to me, but I didn't spend as much time on it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you're often alone. Yeah, you're often a lone voice on campuses when there's you know, BDS activities, and you've engaged with the head of, you know, yeah, the UC schools over the years. You've really stuck your neck out, Judea. And well, this is what I have to offer, right. my neck. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have offered it, but, you know, a lot of uh, pro-Israel professors yes. are reluctant to engage because it's not good for their careers. It's Number it's one, it's not good for their careers. And number two, professors don't like to be to engage. Period, on anything. They don't like to organize. They don't like to speak out on uh, matters unless they are part of the left. <laughs> oh right, but then there's no risk. There's, have there's have no you risk. have you suffered any consequences? I wish I would. <laughs> I keep on saying I wish I would. Because if I suffer, if <laughs> anybody speaks against me, I'm going to get a stage, mm. right? I'm going to scream. I'm going to have, right now I don't have a stage. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? That uh, well, The stage is taken by the professors who teach history. At UCLA, you teach history from the book of Professor Galvin. It's not from the book of Giltroy. Tell us who <laughs> Galvin is, please. Gavin is a professor of history who wrote a, also a book about the Middle East, and he comes to class and tells the students in the first class, 
in a different department or by your own colleague. It's against the unwritten rule, gentlemanic agreement. I don't watch what you're teaching, and do, you do not watch what I'm teaching. Therefore, I have a free um, hunting season. Okay. I can say what I want, I can distort history, and no one will tell me <laughs> that I don't have that. It's exactly what I heard when I went to complain about Galvin to his chairman. And say, the guy writes in the catalog that he's going to teach about X, Y, Z, and look what he's teaching. And the chairman says, look, we don't tell each other what we teach. That oh. is unwritten rule. Well, what if, what if he was teaching Gil Troy? Or what if he was teaching, you know, a more, I don't know, right-wing view? Would uh, No one will say a thing. Mm -hmm. no, it's true. Right. They, they do have this... Uh, mutual respect. So is the problem then that the um, professors are just too left-wing across America? Is that... Because the left-wings are hiring each other. Mm -hmm. Correct. I see. So they have a natural uh, tendency to grow and to perpetuate this culture. And the Jewish faculty is quite silent. Silent. Mm. You know, I, I think the donors need to speak up, <laughs> big donors. Now, there is an Israel Studies program, Yes, right? I'm glad the, you mentioned that. Right. Now, does that, <laughs> does that make a difference? Does that help? I mean, the, the genesis of it was precisely <laughs> to give a problem. more rounded... It's part of the problem. In what sense? Everything here that I say here will count against me. I know. <laughs> 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 the Jewish study program is run by uh, executive by the chair of that entity, which is consistently anti-Zionist. All right, but there's also the Israel Studies program. Yeah, that's different. That's okay, different. that is different. That's yeah. different. Israel Studies is a great thing because mm -hmm. they bring to campus uh, the face of Israel. Mm -hmm. Yes. I see. Yeah, but then you have the Jewish study and you have the Middle East study, and you have the history department, and the three, these three entities are anti-Israel, persistently, consistently. 
You know, it's like I don't mind anti-Israel in the world of propaganda and in the world of activism. It's just like I fight for the Lakers against the Celtics and you fight for that. But you would think, Judea, that if there was any place on the planet that would really enter and show both sides of the picture, it would be a university campus. It would be, you know, that college environment. So when I hear, it's so disheartening for me to hear that scholars and professors are so blatantly biased. And I don't want to sound naive here, but I am. You know, I, 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 I like being naive about this. I don't want to become so cynical that I'll just sort of accept it and get used to it. But there's something utterly outrageous about yes. us. We've become <coughs> so used to it to have professors who would just blatantly show their bias. Yeah, it comes partly from the administration in the sense that they do not want to deal with that. Uh, the administration takes anti-Zionism as a political issue. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a morality issue. Mm -hmm. It's not an identity issue. Okay. Uh, Anti-Israel, well, it's like being anti-tax uh, or anti mm -hmm. uh, right. any political issue. You right. fight among yourselves. It's not our job to make... Uh, the campus um, comfortable for uh, Israeli students or for in, for those who feel who are sensitive. It's your problem if you are sensitive, right? Yeah, it's so. This is the real issue: getting to the mind of people, including the administration, that Zionism is a central component in Jewish identity. Once it is becomes part of our identity, inextricably part of our identity, right? It becomes equivalent to Islamophobia. Zionophobia should be equal to Islamophobia. And look how careful they are about Islamophobia. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned anything against the uh, Islamic religion, and you are dead on campus. They'll jump <laughs> to the ceiling. And, uh, oh, there's such respect for religion in America. It's oh, built yes. into oh, our religion DNA. Religion conveys tremendous uh, respect. Mm -hmm. And uh, politics is um, cheap. It's cheap, and it's nationalism, yeah. and it's colonialism. Yeah. It's, that's the alleged so uh, crime. So it's got all the bad... This is our problem. Mm -hmm. The only fighting world we have is uh, anti-Semitism. Okay, which everybody acknowledges to be something uh, unaccepted. Right, but it's criticism of Israel is completely acceptable. But what you're saying is this is anti-Israel, which it's is different. Anti-Israel is different than criticism. The right of the Jewish people for sovereignty. Right, and then yeah. the one issue that comes up all the time is how Israel treats the Palestinians. Correct. And yet the Palestinians are treated a lot worse in Lebanon, Jordan, and other places throughout the Middle East. And yet, and yet, how come we never hear about that? It's only when the perpetrators are Jewish. No, I don't go for this line, David. Because other people are worse, then forgive us. Oh, not no, worse, I not never... worse. Well, you know, no, no, I mean specifically, though, 
vis-a-vis re- vis the Palestinians because yeah, the claim the claim is they fight for Palestinian rights. But if you really were fighting for Palestinian rights, then you would care about the millions of Palestinians living in horrible conditions in Lebanon and Jordan and other places. Correct, but then they have an ex- excuse for that because they were dis- dispossessed from their land. Therefore, <coughs> therefore, the Lebanese constrains their uh, professions. They want them to drive back and to go back to where they belong, rightly and so forth. That's not my line. What's your line? Uh, that line is we are treating Palestinians very nicely, okay? uh, <coughs> compared with the way they treat us. We are the underdogs. Okay? They have denied us 70 years denial of normalcy. Could you imagine the immensity of what I'm saying now? A continuous denial of normalcy for 70 years? It's a crime against humanity. We are the underdogs. Do you know what it means to live under 150,000 Hezbollah rockets aimed at our civilian population? We are the underdogs. In a way, our image suffers. Uh, The image of Israel suffers because of its military strength. So the fact that we, you know, that we're so strong militarily. Against (laughs) a missile being shot from Beirut to Haifa. A tanks cannot help that. No, it's, we are really the underdog. And in terms of perception, I'm saying about the, treatment of Palestinians or the unfairness here. Give us one year of normalcy and we'll show you what we can do in terms of human rights, in terms of of, uh, apartheid, in terms of um, equal rights and and freedom of movement. Yeah, give us one year of normalcy and then we'll talk. Who have you engaged with uh, on the other side that that gives you hope in terms of the future? The other side? Yes. You mean the Arab uh, side? On the, the left side, the, the, the side that uh, ideologically different. The, have you ever come across anyone on the other side that, how do you envision this thing moving forward? I, 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 look, I, I've been dialoguing with Muslims since uh, ni- since uh, 2002, when the tragedy uh, happened. I've been going from town to town with Ahmad Ahmed, with professor for Islamic uh, religion in uh, George Washington University. And we were doing dialogue between Jews and uh, Muslims. Across the U.S. campus? Across the U.S., mm-hmm. from campus to campus, from city to cities, we had uh, huge... When was that? At that time. That was in the 2004, 5, 6, yeah. 7. Mm. Wow. We even got a prize for, uh, it's called, mm, I forgot the name of the prize. Okay. <laughs> for people out beyond the age of 60 who are doing something useful with their life. <laughs> that, that sounds pretty useful to me. So t- what came out of but that? Look what came out of Very interesting that we talked about the two religions communicating, uh, respecting each other. This was the easy part. 
that was not the issue. Our lesson was we have to start with the hard issues. And the hard issue is Israel. It's not whether Abraham sacrificed Ishmael or sacrificed Isaac. And we have one God. Those are almost God. easy. It was the intention that counts, right? So he, whether he sacrificed Ishmael or Isaac, it doesn't matter. It was the, uh, the symbol of sacrifice. and It was the easy part. The hard part was the Israel issue. And also I learned my lesson. At the moment I give in, they don't respect you. Hmm. If you say, let's, let's go back to the Abraham, they don't respect you. But if you stand on what you believe in, you say, we deserve a homeland. Yeah. And we are the underdog and give us one year of normalcy. Did you say that? Oh, not only that. I, I <laughs> cornered them. I mean, we're talking about crowds of uh, 800 people. Okay? And half of them are Jews and half of them are Muslims. And, um, and the Muslims are keep on saying, and what about the, the treatment of the Palestinian? And I said, get up. Please, I will ask you to get up. I want to ask you a few questions. Okay? Do we deserve a homeland? Okay. Can you say that you are for two-state solution? Would you tell your children, your son, that we have historical connection to this land? Silent. Silent. They wouldn't say. I, I, I'll tell you what I told the guy. He was a doctor, was a physician, smart. Say that we have connection, historical connection, and don't mean it, okay? Just make your lips move. And he wouldn't do that. They cannot utter the idea, okay? And when they saw that, that I focus on Israel, which they considered to be something that I, I would run away from, right? No, I invited them. The moment I mentioned Israel, my eyelids and said, let's talk about the occupation. Come on, I love it. <laughs> let's talk about colonialism. The moment they saw that I am driving to this issue, that I enjoy talking because this is the court where I'm going to win. Okay? The moment they saw that they respect me. And they started communicating and becoming friends and understanding. That is the issue. We have to have spine and we have to be honest. They can feel if, you are, if when we are dishonest and we are running away to the easy issues. Abraham and Ishmael. Okay. <laughs> you wrote one of my all-time favorite pieces years ago. I, I still remember it. I, I remember the essence of the piece, which was we don't know how to get offended. I remember that, yeah. No, we have the right to be offended. Yes. We have the right to be offended, right? And if somebody denies the right of Israel, the Jewish people, to have their state, that's worthy of being offended, and we don't know how to do that. And we, sh we should acquire fighting words. We, we don't have them. Right? So what do you tell a guy who denies Israel the right to exist? What do you tell him? You're in the same act? Oh, people sleep. The moment you mention anti-Semitism, and that's the second thing that we don't know how to do, fighting words. The moment you say you're anti-Semitism, people start yawning. Oh, the Jews cry wolf again. Okay? 
Yeah, I, I think we're spooked, you know, in many ways, pro-Israel. But we do have a fighting world. Spooked because we're attacked by our own uh, people, the Jews, who accuse us of defending Israel blindly, Israel right or wrong, of just propaganda, and we don't understand complexity. Jews worship complexity, which is the, the worst, well, I'm learning on this podcast, which is the worst fighting <laughs> word there is. <laughs> right, and it's the word that we worship. I'm telling you, it's like two mistakes we make, and I do it too. <laughs> we make it complex, and the other one we make it anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic. And to hear a scholar, you know, give me a lesson on simplicity—that's quite moving. I've got to tell you, well, uh, it's a lot of stuff to digest. Uh, one of them is I want to invite you to sort of write a major piece for us on what you just spoke about, which is the, the, these events that you went to. I wasn't aware of that, that you went, uh, you did all these events and spoke to these huge crowds. Uh, it just fascinates me what you said, how even the words could not be uttered. No, no. no Arab can say the word. Jews had historical connection to this land. They cannot utter it. Or... Jews has a historical right to share a piece of land, a, a postage stamp size, okay? Mm. Right. Well, the, the reason I say postage stamp is because this was uh, a slogan in 1936. Right. Not even a postage stamp. Okay? And they kept it. And until today, this should be very clear. And all the left wing and <laughs> should remember that no Arab teacher, no Arab journalist, no Arab leader in the West Bank has ever said the word that Jews deserve a postage stamp of sovereignty in this area, in the Middle East. Well, it's, it's, it's a culture based on dignity. And the more rights you have, the more grievances you have, the more dignity. So it's, it's a definition of dignity that's based on, on victimhood and grievances rather than accomplishment or compromise. And that's the Middle East definition of dignity. And as long as that stays, they will not afford the Jews any dignity. As long as dignity is defined by grievances and victimhood and, and rights then they can't give the Jews any of that dignity. This is, you know. But we're not talking about dignity. We are talking about historical connection, recognizing the fact that we celebrate Hanukkah. We're talking about facts. Facts. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and Very Hanukkah inconvenient facts. took place, you know, in this land. Right. You can't deny but, it. And, uh, uh, but emotional perhaps. narrative is more powerful than facts, especially when those emotional narratives are pitched as facts in the schools and in the propaganda machines, uh, you know, of the countries who need to have Jews as scapegoats. But, uh, you know, I'm tempted to say it's very complex, but I won't anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's very simple. <laughs> it's a culture of me, me, me. It's a culture of us, us, us. Uh, so I want to get some scoops from you. Uh, the big, you know, we always in the Jewish community, we always want to know who's the next person uh, making the lecture at the Daniel Pearl. 
uh, lecture series. You've had Christopher Hitchens, David Brooks, and uh, Candy. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget her name. She was the <laughs> Condoleezza Rice. Condoleezza Rice. Sorry, yes, yes, I've yes. been to pretty much all of them. And, and the last you one had was Farid Zakaria. Zakaria. Yes, it's pretty interesting. Well, the next one is going to be Bob Woodward's. Wow, wow! It's uh, April fourth. Mark that down, Bob Woodward, Watergate. It's really amazing how he kept on going for you know forty-five he, years later. Yeah, Danny uh, came to symbolize a lot of the nobleness of journalism. How many of you had so far? Uh, like uh, just for all of you who don't know out there what this is, I think is it's, uh, six, Scott, 17. 17, the Daniel Pearl yeah. Lecture Series. You had Leon Wieseltier. Who was the first speaker? Uh, Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman. Yeah. Right, I remember. <coughs> and I, I, I still remember it today. Thomas Friedman tells us in the Daniel Pearl Lecture, he says that... Turkey will be the light for the Arab world. They will all look at Turkey and say, we can also be democracy. We can. <laughs> and I ask him, Tom, so why, why isn't the case? <laughs> right. Cause and effect. Had they been. I, I think we should get a hold of Thomas Friedman and find out how he feels about that prognostic. <laughs> Who else did you have that I uh, remember? Uh, is there any of them that stood out? I mean, Brett Stevens was extraordinary. Uh, do you do you go back on them? And first of all, are you thinking of publishing those lectures? It'd be an interesting idea. Mm, I haven't thought. Oh, we have a publisher here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I smell a project. Not all of them are preserved in a form which is publishable. But uh, why? Well, I mean, you have if you have a video, a video then yeah. we can get it transcribed. Okay, great. Let's have to get the copyright from them. And uh, agreement. I, I have a feeling they, they wouldn't mind that, uh, <laughs> except for Thomas Friedman. <laughs> He'll tell us, can you lose that line on Turkey? On Turkey. The real Turkey <laughs> line. Anyhow, so next year uh, is Bob Woodward. How long ahead of time do you pick your speakers? Six months. Uh, do you always get yeses? People uh, are so respectful of your son. Uh, uh, no, we, uh, we can't get a hold of Tony Blair. We tried so hard. <laughs> uh, seriously? <laughs> yes. Would you invite uh, Barack Obama? Hey, of course. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be a good idea. Oh, we tried to get... Uh, oh. I forgot the name already. Um, the uh, Ilar Roman? No, no, no. The UN representative with, uh, under Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, yeah, Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. We tried to get her so much, and she was too busy. Uh huh. Well, she shouldn't be as busy now because she's no longer, you know, in uh, next year in that <laughs> position. Nikki <laughs> right. Haley, yes. So, Judea, do you have any? Anything coming up that you want to share with us next few months? Any ideas, books, essays, projects? I have my books to defend because everybody's attacking it. So the I'm Book of Why? The Book of Why, yes. So Who's attacking it? it? Oh. In the scholarly world, you mean? Yeah, yes. 
I'm exaggerating when I say attaching okay. it, but um, reservations and... Uh, so we got to keep an eye out on that debate. Yes, because everybody knows what intelligence is and everybody knows what cause and effect is, right? Because we we're born with it. So when you're trying to put it down in a more mechanistic uh, style, people jump on you and say, mm -hmm. that is not how I think about cause and effect, and uh, that's not uh, what we have done, especially when you have uh, professional pride and you attack statisticians and economists. And, uh, well, my brother's a statistician, and he loved your book, The Scientist. Oh, yeah, right. Montreal. I yeah, I introduced you to him. Yeah, loved your book. Um, so you, you started a conversation. Who's the number one authority in your mind right now regarding artificial intelligence in the world? Who do you love to read? Who should we keep an eye on? One or two, three key names. I must confess my guilt. I'm reading primarily myself, my own writing, and I enjoy it. <laughs> That's a lot of confidence, yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, I sometimes read things that I wrote 20 years ago, and I say, wow, this guy had patience for detail. <laughs> <laughs> you want to capture, recapture that? I Judea? wish I could you have wanna... the same energy. <laughs> Do you feel that your mind is as sharp as ever? Uh, no, I know it's not. It's not. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you know? Besides the obvious thing of recalling certain details, recalling names as you saw here, I couldn't even name Nikki Haley. <laughs> right, right. No, I, we all have those moments. But in terms of your ability to make connections and concepts and and so forth, the sharpness of critical thinking. But that remains. Mm -hmm. The connections remain. Yeah, understanding what relates to what and what leads to what. Yeah, that remains. Well, we're mm -hmm. very grateful that it's remaining. And uh, on that note, Judea Pearl, I've always wanted to have you on, on the show, and I'm delighted that you were able to brave the L.A. traffic and schlep all the way to Koreatown. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I would love to have you. Thanks. Great. Yeah, thank Great you so much. You, and yeah. thank you for having me. And come to my house Friday night. Shabbat. <laughs> okay. We have good wine. All right. Take care. Thank you.